The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Waves for Thursday, July 5th, the Big D Energy Edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate. And for once, everybody involved in the making of this podcast is in one homey studio. So here with me in Slate's Brooklyn studio is our producer, Verlin Williams. Hello. Hello. How are you, Christina? I'm doing all right. How are you? Good to see you. Yeah, I know. This is incredible. Um, It feels like one big family. Joining the family for the first time on this podcast is the senior politics editor at The Intercept, contributing editor at Current Affairs, and co-host of the podcast SWOTI, or Someone's Wrong on the Internet, Brianna Joy Gray. Welcome, Brianna. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. Um, I've been reading a lot of your work recently because of a piece I wrote, so I can't wait to ask you about it. Ooh. So today's episode is going to start with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the 28-year-old Democratic Socialist and likely future Congresswoman who is striking fear into the hearts of establishment Democrats around the country. Then, We will apply our critical and intellectual faculties to the very important and very timely concept of big dick energy. Does it exist? (laughs) What does it mean? And why are we talking about it? And finally, we will discuss the debates around the Atlantic's recent cover story on kids who identify as trans. Also today in our Slate Plus segment, where we take a topic and rate it from 1 to 10 on how sexist it is, we will decide, is the media's coverage of Ali Watkins, the New York Times reporter who had an affair with James Wolfe, a senior aide to the Senate Intelligence Committee, which she covered at the time, sexist? If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you should be, and you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. So before we get into our discussion, we have a little bit of business. You are probably sick of hearing about this if you listen to the podcast, in which case, I hope you bought your tickets to (laughs) our live recording in D.C. It's going to be me. It's going to be Verilyn, June, and Hannah. It's Tuesday, July 17th at the Hamilton. We're going to have a live set from an awesome D.C. post-punk band, Bakai. The tickets are $20 to $30, and if you're a Slate Plus member, you can get 30% off at slate.com slash live. I'm really excited to meet some of you there. And, uh, Verilyn, why should people come to the show? Well, first of all, you get to see us in person. I don't know if that's exciting, but it'll be exciting for me. We'll be wearing our Tuesday <laughs> best. <laughs> um, also, just, you know, for smart, like, the conversation that you're used to. You get to, like, participate. We'll mm-hmm. definitely have a mic. So all the times you're listening and you're like, ooh, I wish they had said this. Or I wish I could push them on that you know, you'll have an opportunity to do that. Yeah, and you'll also get to ask us, is it sexist? So hopefully you'll bring your good, is it sexist questions. We also will have a special guest, Ellen Renee Stoffan, who was the chief scientist of NASA and currently runs the National Air and Space Museum. So make sure you bring all of your uh, space-related inquiries as well. All right. Let's get down to our discussion. First of all, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm sure a lot of you have been reading a lot about her this week. She's 28 years old. She was an organizer with the Bernie Sanders campaign. And in the New York Democratic primary last week, she beat 10-term Congressman Joe Crowley. He was the fourth. He is the fourth-ranking Democrat in the House. He was uh, widely believed to be in the running to be the next speaker. It was a complete surprise for a lot of the analysts watching the campaign when, you know, three weeks out, this upstart was some 30 points behind him in the polls. 
and won by a really comfortable margin. Um, so, Brianna, you've written a bunch about her. And I know there was one piece you wrote at The Intercept where you said there was an easy answer to why she won. So I'm curious as to what that is. Yeah. Uh, the easy answer to me is her policies, um, which are organized around principles, which I think are easily defined as democratic socialism. So that socialism has been this buzzword that has gotten kind of desensitized over the years since everybody over the course of the Obama administration decided that he was the best exemplar of socialism. I think it the backfired in, in some ways to people who are more conservative because it meant that it no longer sounded like the, the scary uh, thing that it once was. So now we have um, Bernie Sanders, who's popularized the term further. And we have this young, very likable, um, very smart, very capable woman who has now managed to steal the hearts and minds of a lot of Americans and who hasn't backed away from the term. But despite that, and despite the fact that her um, uh, her, her approach was, I think, moving to people and really motivated people to the polls because it spoke very directly to their um, really essential material needs, right? She spoke about um, $15 minimum wage, the need for health care as a human right, um, the fact that nobody in America should be so poor that they can't live a life with dignity in the richest country in the world, right? These are mm. all um, these kind of humanitarian socialist ideals. Um, the way that her win has been characterized by a lot of the media is as a kind of a demographic inevitability. So the fact that she is Latina in a district that is largely uh, Hispanic and in, and has been more and more Hispanic over the years has been um, considered to be kind of like it was like a fait accompli almost. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of, of, uh, about her actual um, uh, ability, her personal skill, and also the fact that her message was one that can motivate people to want to actually get out and vote has been lost in the conversation. So I wrote a piece on Sunday that was uh, somewhat in response to the conversation that you're talking about, where I know Ocasio-Cortez tweeted, like, you know, everyone's saying I won for demographic reasons. Here's a picture of the shoes I wore while I was campaigning. You know, they've got holes in the bottom. I knocked on doors. I spoke to the community. She has been very critical of Crowley for, you know, sending his kids to school in Virginia. He, apparently he doesn't or she says that he doesn't spend much time in the community. She also did well with all demographics. It wasn't just the half of her district that's Latino that voted for her, um, which is all true. The argument that I wanted to make is the idea that, you know, that demographic reasons would not produce a win that that would be um, as significant as a win, you know, based on her socialist principles. I think that there's a lot of value to having demographic representation in the House. And she proved that. I mean, I watched a video of her produced by Remezcla, the uh, Latina news outlet. And, you know, she's speaking Spanish to people, something that Joe Crowley could never do. She, you know, was born in the community. Her dad was raised in the community. She moved back. She has has worked alongside undocumented people. I'm not sure if Joe Crowley ever has. Her identity is not meaningless. Mm -hmm. The fact that she is able to speak to people to identify with their experiences will make her a better leader uh, when she gets elected, which is likely since it's a very heavily Democratic district. I agree with you. I think that her identity is valid. And I think that, 
you know, her, the fact that she's like, I want to abolish ICE. <laughs> like, not just, like, work with it, not just, like, make it fair, but, like, this is a destructive institution that we just need to abolish. Definitely, Like, I think her identity makes her stand in policy changes she wants to make. There is, like, a discounting that happens when people just focus on identity politics because it's, what it's really talking about is that the people that she is reaching, that they, oh, they don't know any better. Like, hmm. they're just doing it. But because, they just want her because yeah, she's brown. Yeah, because she's brown. Like, But also she's, like, being able to speak to things that people feel in their heart. Like, I, I was listening to a podcast with her and she was just talking about, like, she graduated and she's working in a restaurant and she has this degree and, like, she can't. And I'm like, I can rest with that I grew I graduated in 2008 when the world was ending like mm-hmm. those are the kind of things like yeah I see myself in her experience I grew up in the Bronx like I see myself in her experience but I think what I what's more is like yes and and because she has my experience she's able to connect to and make policy decisions that I I feel to my core. Yes. I I think that nobody puts this better than Ocasio-Cortez herself, which is remarkable because I've built a little career for myself talking about identity (laughs) issues. And she just swooped in and I was like, I'm glad you decided to be a politician, not a writer, because I'd be out of the job. (laughs) Um, But she gave this great interview with Glenn Greenwald at The Intercept. Um, where he asked her this question, and she talks for about five minutes about identity politics. And she says, you know, it's not enough. She she parrots what, you know, Bernie Sanders says and got in a lot of trouble for, that it's not enough for me to, to vote for me because I'm XYZ I, identity. And that a lot of people, there are these candidates that are, quote, Trojan horses um, for ideologies, mm. for policy prescriptions that aren't actually beneficial to the groups that their identity would suggest that they best uh, represent. Um, and she connects, she, she has said, you know, I can't can't think of an economic issue that doesn't implicate race. And I can't think of a racial issue that doesn't implicate economics. And the idea that we're supposed to separate policy mm. from identity and the way that um, a lot of media forces have um, suggested in the wake of the 2016 primary and in the course of the 2016 election, you know, it does a disservice to both race-based and class-based uh, efforts. But what her focus is, is she says, you know, the identity is a lens, You know, she said at the end of the day, I'm a candidate that doesn't take corporate money, that champions Medicare for Mm -hmm. all, a federal jobs guarantee, the abolishment of ICE and a Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. But I approach those issues with the lenses of the community I live in. And she says that's not as easy to say as identity politics. So I think part of it is because we live in the soundbite culture, you're kind of forced, you know, people try to force you to say identity is important and that is taken to mean, you know, it's it excludes other kinds of policy prescriptions. And that's the force of the narrative that I've seen following her election. Oh, she's a Latina. It's a Latina district. But that's not even the reality on the ground. And she was strongest. Um, the Intercept put out an article over the weekend that did a demographic analysis and showed that her strongest districts were actually these more uh, gentrifying districts where justice Democrats and some of the groups that endorsed her, um, these burning organizations, were able to mobilize a lot of that coalition to go door to door and spread her message around pe- to, to people who might not have had as much access to kind of um, – new media, you know, the Facebook ads and the internet ads and those kinds of things. And I think that that piece of the story can't be missed out on, especially if we're looking to these kinds of races for their prescriptive ability. Mm -hmm. You know, what should we do the next time around? What Mm -hmm. should we do in 2020? Yeah, that message that you just laid out, which I think is incredibly compelling, is so much more convincing to me coming from her than it was coming from Bernie Sanders. Mm. Um, I honestly, in part because of her identity, because I just uh, 
found it really hard to look at an old white man and think like, well, this is the future of politics. You know, I agree. Look, I think there are a lot of things. I I personally love Senator Sanders. (laughs) I mean, but I I appreciate that in an ideal world, we'd have a younger candidate. We'd have a diverse, more diverse candidate. We might, you know, a female candidate. All these kinds of things are, you know, lenses that we've missed out on. But when I'm picking political representation, I just feel like it's incredibly important to look first at what the policy prescriptions are. Mm -hmm. Because in 2016, we had two old white candidates. We had three old white candidates, (laughs) really, at at the end of the day. And nobody, the only people of color that were fielded were from the right. Right. And we all understand intuitively that if a Republican puts if the Republican Party puts up Marco Rubio or our, uh, Carly Fiorina, Carly Fiorina, Carly mm-hmm. Fiorina, you know, that doesn't mean that she's the best for right. women, et cetera. <laughs> and some of us um, not to relinigate the primary, but some of us in 2016 were frustrated because when Hillary Clinton picked Tim Kaine, for instance, Planned Parenthood, nobody pushed back on the fact that he as governor had backed all of these um, kind of anti-choice initiatives, right? right? And the idea that, you know, Hillary Clinton's gender might have masked some of that criticism, shielded him from some of the criticism that was legitimate, that she was, you know, an older woman herself, and I hope that she lives a very long life, but kind of putting (laughs) America in a place um, with someone whose own personal beliefs were antithetical to a pro-choice movement, you know, that's something that we should have a political interest in Mm -hmm. and not be afraid to hold our leadership accountable for. Um, And we should be careful that we don't let identity basically shield people and allow those kind of Trojan horse scenarios. Yeah, it's like that not being able to section off all the identities that I have. When I see her, I really think of that. And the example that you just gave with Hillary Clinton choosing Tim Kaine is kind of just like being like, you know what, for the sacrifice of this campaign, it's almost like a political game, right? For the sacrifice of winning, I'm going to make this allowance, right? And I think what I see in candidates like Alexandria saying, like, none of my identities can be sacrificed in this moment, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, I hear her just casually talk about the Black Lives Matter movement and how important it was that there were three women leading that charge that said enough is enough. When I hear her talk, I feel like I hear someone that's just, like, not thinking about this political game. When you see more traditional long-term politicians talk, you, you kind of recognize that that's what they're doing. Um, Nancy Pelosi, you know, uh, I was so frustrated because I'm like, you are like the highest Democratic, like you are so out of touch. Tell me what she said. Uh, so I have it here. She says, um, talking about her district and the fact that she won, she says um, they made a choice in one district. Let's not, who is she talking to? Anyway? Let's not quote. get yourself carried away as an expert on demographics for the rest of that. We have an array of genders, generations, and we're proud of that. The fact that a very progressive district in New York, Joe Corley, is a progressive. But she's more left than Joe Corley. It's about that district. And I'm like, you, my, madame, are so <laughs> out of... I just want those moments where you're just like, where you're living in a glass house. Like, yeah. it just feels so out of touch. And it makes me... It gives me so much anxiety because I'm like, you are the highest Democrat. Yeah. And if you can feel that way and if you can say that without like and like dismissing the concerns of a district that's so representative of America mm-hmm. and the people that, you know, you could sit there in one breath talk about what Trump is doing with immigration, um, you know, families in, 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 on the border. But then say this about a district that is like literally the Democrat that's most affected by that. <laughs> yeah. And, and unfortunately, she's not the only one. Look, Nancy Pelosi really distinguished herself by being the woman who, when approached very um you know, cautiously and sweetly by a, so a young uh, college student, a recent graduate at a town hall that said, hey, 
Pelosi. What do you think about the fact that a lot of people in my generation are not down with capitalism? Like all the yeah. polls shit say that the millennials and, and younger, you know, we're not. We, we don't accept this as kind of like the way that the world has to be. And her reply famously was, we're just capitalists. It, it's how it is. <laughs> I remember she that. She wouldn't even consider it, right? <laughs> and so now we, you know, that's that's the kind of mind frame people are coming from. And it's not about um, kind of these um, kind of political conceptions, I think, of things like capitalism and socialism. You know, the, the, the so- social democratic uh, nations that we point to in Europe as models have capitalist systems working there. We have a lot of socialist systems in America. Some of our most popular systems are socialist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Medicare, for instance, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the VA, the military is an incredible socialist institution, right? But yet we, we have so many people who are unwilling to generalize this more broadly to Amer- America because they're rooting her success in the demographic fact of her um, constituency. Mm. We had Tammy Duckworth, um, from Illinois, mm-hmm. say uh, something similar that she, you know, yay for Ocasio Cortez, but she can't win in the Midwest, which also ignores the demographic reality of yeah. the two, 2016 yeah. primary, where the the socialist agenda, the Bernie Sanders agenda, was incredibly successful there, uh, and those were the exact states um, that are feeling the kind of economic pressure that he that a kind of materialist movement speaks to, and which also didn't do well for Hillary Clinton in the general election. So I just think it's really important to focus on the reality of what the electoral reality is and how people on the ground are actually responding to these messages and not try to make it into something that's easily dismissed. I I uh, read that same quote from Tammy Duckworth, and I thought it was, first of all, patently ridiculous because, like, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is not running in the Midwest and would would have possibly run a slightly different campaign in the Midwest, which isn't to say more conservative, but like different, you know, that she's a product of her district. And, you know, she ran a great campaign in her district. However, uh, just to bring things back to identity, you know, Bernie Sanders is a white man. And I wonder if since some of those states where he did well, like you said, didn't do so well for Hillary and so we're possibly more animated by Trump, the racist candidate, whether they would be as willing to accept a you know democratic socialist candidate who wasn't white. So a few things. One, I think we should all remember that those states, many of them went for Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, I know this is a controversial subject, but the the Obama Trump voter is real and would have won Hillary Clinton the election. Right. So something like 25 percent of um, white Obama voters flipped for Trump. And a lot of those people were living in Midwestern states like that. Like those were the districts that Hillary Clinton really needed to hold on to. That's not to say that if you vote for Obama, you're not racist. My point is always that even if you're (laughs) racist, you can vote for a person of color. So Mm. the conversation about who's racist and who's not racist, it's academic to me on on some level. Mm. The point of the matter is if you're a politician and you want to win a race, Mm. the getting up on stage and calling people deplorable, even if it's True. <laughs> right. It doesn't make a difference. You're still the president of the country. You're, yeah. you're tr- that's the job you're aiming for. And your job is to represent those people and make their lives better. And if you don't like that reality, if you don't want to represent racists, then you probably shouldn't sign up for this job. Because <laughs> this, this is a diverse country filled with lots of different kinds of people. And the way that you get people on board with your message is explaining to them how your policies are going to make their lives better. Bernie Sanders popularity is not higher with any group in America than black people. And a lot of what we saw electorally in 2016 had a lot to do with the fact that he had like 2% name recognition going into this race and the fact that the Democratic machine in the South is very, very strong. 
It just is. Um, so I think that, you know, I wouldn't read too much into the idea that just because Bernie Sanders is white, his message can't resonate with people of color. Um, because I think what we see is that it, in fact, does. And that people have a way of being able to see through the BS and understand when people are talking about their real lived concerns. And Ocasio-Cortez understands that. And that, and she understands that talking about ICE, talking about some of these issues that are more, quote unquote, identity related, don't turn off the working class voters who also see that she's talking about issues that are going to materially improve their lives. But, but still, my like my parents did not were not down for Bernie Sanders. Like, I do think that there were the maybe it is the name recognition. Maybe, you know, it's just like, who is this guy, this white guy that claims to have worked with Martin Luther King, but we haven't seen him in all this time. Like, it just felt there was like a disconnect there. So Look, I do think some of that disconnect is real. I do think though that some of that disconnect was very media driven. I mean, we don't have to. Yeah, go into we don't it, need but, to read the debate, you know. but I. But I do. And, but I think that, I mean, I guess a good place to maybe end is that it's so amazing that we're in the midterm election and we're having these conversation and it feels so fresh for people. Like that alone to me, like it's giving me goosebumps mm-hmm. and I'm just super excited for the possibilities. And hopefully the more traditional politicians like Pelosi can wake up to that. Amen. <laughs> Listeners, we're excited to hear what you have to say about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's candidacy. I would love to know what you think about uh, Nancy Pelosi's uh, comments and Tammy Duckworth's idea that, you know, she, well, she can't win in the Midwest. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. All right. I'm really excited for our second topic today. <laughs> Big Dick energy. <laughs> I, I prefer to put the emphasis on the second word in the phrase. Um, Fair. <laughs> so this term, which I, it's got to have been used before this moment in time, but it is experiencing its big dick moment uh, on the interweb, mostly in reference to Anthony Bourdain on the occasion of his death and Pete Davidson, the Saturday Night Live cast member who recently got engaged to Ariana Grande after just a few weeks of dating. They're both 24, which it's been so nice to see like an age appropriate Hollywood couple. Mm, That's true. Um, So people are all up in the Twitters and the blogs and uh, even some legacy media outlets talking about big dick energy very Marilyn, please enlighten us. (laughs) What are we talking about here? So when you first mentioned this in our email where we kind of think about what the topics we're going to talk about each week, I was like, okay, clearly I'm missing something. I can't believe I missed this moment. I'm going to go do all this research and come up with what this thing is. Because, of course, like the fact that so many people are talking about it it has to have like some kind of meat to it. Um, <laughs> Good one. But, yeah. but um, you know, so the uh, Allison Davis in the cut defines it as the quiet confidence and ease with one's self that comes from knowing you have an enormous penis and you know what to do with it. It's not cockiness. It's not a power trip. It's the opposite. A healthy, satisfying, low-key way to feel yourself. I don't know how I feel about the equating of that those characteristics to having a big dick so um so <laughs> so that was my first thing i was like it has to be deeper like it can't <laughs> it can't just, just keep, be this keep talking it can't just be like literally about like a man that feels or like knows that he has a you know a big member um or like someone that walks around like that because it just feels like are we still like are we not in 2018 like why are we equating an energy 
to an anatomy where like you know our next subject we're going to be talking about raising trans children like this feels out of touch like we can't be just casually having this conversation but apparently we are um <laughs> so it actually originated from a tweet sent out by Carell grant um on june 8th she tweeted we're talking about how anthony bourdain had a big had big dick energy which is what he would have wanted and um Carell writes in broadly that the conversation about Bourdain happened on a night, she says, happened on the night my friends and I drinking some orange wine, lamenting that none of us would ever get to fuck him because (laughs) not only was he hot, he was a man who was very curious and empathetic and a good listener, which, you know, is rare to find. We came to the conclusion that he must have had a huge dick to match his great personality. <laughs> <laughs> All fair things. I'm here for the wine. Like what it is feels orange wine. Orange wine. I orange know. wine is also having a moment. Okay. We can talk about that in the next episode, but it's literally orange. Um, yeah, it's it's like orange. It's like the, the cool fruit? thing to request. Like it used to be rosé, now it's orange. Uh, I guess okay. I'm not cool. Yeah. So you know, but I feel like that, like the way she explains it. I feel like gives the appropriate level of seriousness to the situation. Where it's literally like about (laughs) someone's big dick. Dick, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And like literally about like the kind of conversation you have with your girls when you're like drinking and like under the influence of something. Um, But apparently now there are like these articles where like, does this person have big dick energy? Does this person? And I just feel like I would see big dick energy in the dictionary and I would see like Rihanna next to it. Like that to me when I think of it is who I think of. Were y'all involved in this moment? Like I feel like I missed the moment and now I'm like going back to the moment trying to figure it out. Like, Rihanna's nodding her head like yeah. she was the arbiter of this moment. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm like the last to know. I think that maybe I'm like 32 and that this like I'm just not in the zeitgeist anymore (laughs) like I'm very online and somehow I'm just like I saw the article like when it came up on New York Mag which is probably an indication that I wasn't on the (laughs) the crest of that wave (laughs) but it seemed to me just to be like the opposite of you know the stereotype about oh that guy's overcompensating because he's driving a Ferrari it's like that was like little dick energy the idea that I have to be ostentatious and really showy and over the top and braggadocious to overcompensate from a lack of um, between the thighs gifts. And this is just like the positive spin on it Mm. that regardless of what you actually have got going on, you have that big dick essence. Mm. Yeah, I'm like trying so hard to get behind this. (laughs) Um, I too, I think I was away. I was like off. Twitter when this was happening and I re-entered the sphere and I was like excuse me what are (laughs) all of these like feminist and feminist and progressive news outlets talking about um you know I this is actually like a little bugbear of mine where you know like back in my day like back when I was having sex with men like another lifetime ago I felt like I hated that there was this idea that a big dick was a good dick. Mm. I did not find that to be the case, I, you know, in all in all cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, wait, there's, there's some sipping of water and coffee, like. <laughs> and I I feel like the more we talk about big dick as good dick, the more we'll get the harmful effects of little mm. dick energy, where people with uh, little or average sized dicks. Uh, 
have like a a complex about it. And uh, what is it? Not the what side of the boat is the motion in the ocean? Yeah, I, I don't think that's a I platitude. Subscribe to that. I yeah. subscribe to that. As do I, and I do think that there is this been this effort to say, oh, it's not literal, right? Rihanna is someone who gets pointed to a lot as having big dick energy. I heard Kate Blanchett has big dick energy. Mm-hmm. Cardi B probably has big dick energy. Everyone you know, in like, this room. I mean, <laughs> clearly, that's just, clearly. I, I lead with it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like. It it can't not reinforce negative stereotypes yeah, yes. about actual penis size, which I think just aren't const- like men are hearing this and like behaving in a like bad way. Like, yeah. like they are taking the wrong lesson from this mm. and it's only gonna hurt the people who are sleeping with them. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps literally. literally. Yeah. <laughs> and like, honestly, so I kind of resent that we're it's like forced to talk about dicks in this sort of like reverent way. And I think this is a prime example, just to bring it back to like the serious feminist talk of how sexism also hurts men, that mm. we also set these unreachable, yep. unreachable bars for men to clear. Um, and I... I guess I appreciate that some outlets are trying to or some, you know, cultural critics are trying to say like, oh, this can apply to women. Like, it doesn't matter if you have a dick or what size it is. But it's like saying like she's got balls or something. I also just. And this is going to be like, I don't even know if I want to go down this road. Go down it. Go down it. There is, I think like, you know, because I see race in all things. Like I was looking at the list that Allison wrote for The Cut and I was like, she, so she does like a, you know, Trevante Rose, uh, BDE, Um, Kate Blanchett, BDE for days, Justin Bieber. Like, like she's just going down the list. And so I... Worst thing, so like there's a stereotype <laughs> that black men have big penises. Really, I've never heard that before, <laughs> yes. Marilyn. I don't know if you know, but here, here we are. And so, of course, like now I'm reading this list and I'm just like, okay, like now, like I'm looking at it like Justin Timberlake, nah, um, you know, and I'm just like, it's just Alba, yes. And I'm like, well, is she like are did all you the do black a statistical analysis? I did. Well, I was, I because there's some of these names that I had to Google, like I don't know, <laughs> I didn't know who Sean Mendez is. Menace. Like, he's Menace. actually a really catchy pop star. Oh. Is he? Okay, yeah. cool, cool, cool. But with a name like Mendez, <laughs> you don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Jodeci, yes. You know, like... And but Kanye, nah. But Kanye, nah. Yeah, but true. like... Kanye. He's his own thing. After that Trump endorsement. It's just yeah. Trump endorsement. <laughs> I kind of felt like, and it was towards the end. So I, I don't know whether there was an editor that was like, so all the black, black men yeah. you've <laughs> said have big dicks. And no okay, can I tell you guys something? I was talking about this with a couple friends the other day. And my friend, who one of the people in the conversation who was black, was like, I thought Pete Davidson was black. And I was like, do. wait a minute. Like after you had seen a photo of him, and she was like, "Yeah, wow." No, that's a thing. People are making jokes because no Ariana idea. Grande. People think that she's Latina, and that and he's black. And like ah. they're just this couple of people who are just a hundred percent white, but nobody thinks so. Yeah, and and somebody and the friend who thought that Pete Davidson was black was like, "Yeah, well, Ariana Grande, you know, only dates black guys. Her last boyfriend was white." Uh, I'm, I'm not gonna. F- now. I'm not going to front. I'm looking at a picture of Pete Davidson right now. I'm going to turn my computer around and show you all. Yeah, I see it. I mean, maybe this maybe I'm racist, but I have always known and believed that he was just white. 
He's just from. He looks like someone that Staten has Island someone in the back or Long of his Island somewhere. Really, I, I have never. So you think he's lying? That. No, no, no. I don't mean slavery is a thing. Like maybe <laughs> something somewhere, something you know. I, I mean, obviously, however he wants to identify as who he, he is, might not know. But when he covers, it's, I feel like he used to wear his hair a little shorter and like flat caps, and there can be like a like a distortion that happens. I never thought he wasn't white, but I've also heard this about uh, Michelle Wolf. That oh, she gets so yeah. interesting. And she's done stand-up about that, which yeah. I, I actually see more than Pete. I just want to say that this is where the conversation about big dick energy has led us. Like, we are, like, <laughs> trying to figure out, like, who is... And then I guess I, I sent this down the racetrack. <laughs> but, like, I guess I just think that this... I mean, although I do think there are... Like, for me, I, there are many times in my life where I say I'm going to put on my white privilege. Like, at the airport, I do this a lot. Where I'm just like, I know that I, I'm in zone one. But I'm gonna stand up right now because they're calling priority. Like carry yourself with the confidence yes. of a Pete Davidson yes. or something. And so I, I think I, intellectually I get it, but I do think that there, like like you said, is this is this is a, a a road that is going to like harm us more than it's going to do us good. I think like an enormous dick. Like <laughs> I am so excited. I'm. Stoked to see the kinds of emails we get about this segment. Um, all right. So, listeners, should we be entertaining new ways of uh, linking male-associated genitalia with positive characteristics? That's a really academic question. Or you can just tell us if you think Pete Davidson is black. Um, email us at thewaves at slate.com. Next up, when children say they're trans, that's the headline of an article that Jesse Single wrote for the cover story of the July-August issue of The Atlantic. Jesse Single, who is a contributing writer at New York Magazine, dove into the protocol around medical transition for kids and teenagers who identify as transgender, arguing that some therapists and clinicians are too eager to believe young people when they say they're trans and end up rushing them into puberty blockers, which delay the onset of puberty as long as the kid is on the medication, or hormone therapy, or even surgeries. The piece includes a bunch of interviews with young adults who are desisters, which means people whose gender dysphoria eventually goes away without full social or medical transition, and others who are detransitioners, people who go through social and at least some facets of medical transition before realizing that they aren't really trans. So Heron Walker, who's with us right now, is a writer at Jezebel, and she wrote two pieces in response to Singles' article. Heron, we're so happy to have you on the show. Thank you for coming. Hi, thanks for having me. So can you just lay out for us the major critiques of the Atlantic article that uh, trans readers and activists in particular are making? I know uh, there's been some real uh, deep and wide debate about it in, in many activist circles. Sure. Um, so I guess to start on a more micro level with the article itself, it is a story that presents itself as, you know, um, your child comes to you, they say they're trans, uh, and it's it, it, it postures as if it's a story about um, how parents and kids navigate, you know, the possibility of transition um, in adolescence. But then the more you read on and read on and read on, because it's like 12,000 words or something, um, uh, <laughs> the first five examples of the seven adolescents you meet are all cis kids who end up not transitioning and it's not until about 9,000 words in I think that you um, even meet a single trans kid who is actually you know firmly 
decided and happy about their decision to transition, which to me does not present the balanced, nuanced presentation of something like adolescent transition as the Atlantic claims it to be. Um, To me, that seems to be reaffirming any kind of preconceived bias or anxiety on the part of the parents who subscribe to the Atlantic, who might be receiving it, who are cis themselves and don't quite understand all the transness that they're seeing in the media everywhere and kind of want a um, a bit of objectivity theater to back up any kind of anxiety they have. They're like, no, they're right to be anxious. And, and detransition is a real thing, both for the, you know, the kind of narratives that Jesse presents, like that is a real thing that happens and should totally be covered and everything. But there are other kinds of detransition stories. We never hear detransition stories about people who are trans, um, but, you know, can't get work because no one will hire them because mm-hmm. they're uh, too visibly trans and they maybe make customers uncomfortable or they're unable to, you know, everything just stacks up so they can't afford to go to school to get the degree they want. And without the degree, they can't get a certain kind of job that might allow them safety. And um, then they maybe can't afford to pay their rent. And so, and, and much less their, their hormones or their, their medications or anything. Um, so that's the kind of detransition story we don't hear. And that rubs a lot of us the wrong way because it seems to be a narrative that he's pushing forward over and over that, you know, maybe we get it wrong. Maybe we don't always know what we're talking about. That's a really good point. I was talking to a colleague who at first, you know, read Jesse Singles' piece and thought, what's the big deal? Um, and then listened a little bit more to some criticisms from trans people. And he made a, a point that rung true to me, which is that I think journalists sometimes have a little bit of a bias toward the counterintuitive and the transgressive. And, you know, it's funny to see people, some of the people defending Singles article saying things like, well, you know, like you'll get torn apart on Twitter if you question, you know, the validity of trans identity or or, or the idea that kids deserve um, gender affirming and trans affirming care. And I'm like, wow, when did trans people become like the powerful establishment mm. here? That's I, I just think that that argument is pretty disingenuous. But the argument that that journalists believe, you know, well, these stories are valid and deserve to be told. And so why won't anyone let me tell them? <laughs> yes, I think they're valid and deserve to be told. I found some of the personal accounts of the kids and teenagers in the article really interesting. However, the article frames those stories as sort of like an equal and opposite population to actual trans kids and then extrapolates from those, you know, detransition or desistance stories to make arguments and draw conclusions about actual trans people and and their care. And it doesn't seem like those populations are the same at all, that, you know, this dysphoria that manifests in somebody, in a young person with severe mental health issues unrelated to gender dysphoria or, you know, a, a girl who is feeling uncomfortable in her body because of puberty and because of the hypersexualization of young girls, that doesn't seem the same to me as what happens with a transgender kid. And so the conflation of those two populations seemed kind of irresponsible to me in an article that um, argued at several points that, you know, parents should take a step back and reconsider what they're doing. Um, it, and it kind of made it seem like there was this epidemic of doctors prescribing hormones and performing gender affirming surgeries on on teenagers, which just doesn't seem to be the case to me. You know, there was no there was there were no numbers given in that article to make me think that there are a ton of doctors out there like 
uh, mutilating kids' bodies, which, again, <laughs> and also that framing just seemed wrong because, like, Alex Barish wrote what I thought was a really good response in Slate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm biased because they work at Slate, but um, <laughs> no, it was great. kind of confronting the idea that cisgender bodies are somehow more whole and holy uh, than trans bodies. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I know whose dads offered to get them a boob job at 16 mm-hmm. who who had their, you know, their ears stuck out a little and had their ears pinned back, whose dads offered them a nose job. Oh, dads seem to be really the common thread <laughs> in this year. But um, who's to say that this is kind of a completely different point, but who's to say that the regret that, you know, a de-sister or a de-transitioner feels should be given more sway in the conversation over how trans kids should be treated in the healthcare system than the trauma that a transgender kid feels when they don't get the care that they need. If if I could, I want to push back against that just a little bit um, on two fronts. One, just to your latter point, I do think that there is a genuine kind of fetishization about particularly the idea of bottom surgery and the kind of sense of it being this, uh, significant and ir- like largely irreversible kind of a of a thing, and that that is where a lot of the anxiety about oh my god, what if we're making the wrong decision comes from, and I do think that this subject becomes interesting to people because they are anticipating people making the wrong de- like um, uh, detransitioners having to reckon with having. Be, you know, change, modify themselves in a way that is v- difficult to undo, um, and I and conflating that with uh, the sisters who haven't actually gone through any um, body modification, who are just taking hormones, is part of where the kind of like the all of the energy and kind of the sexiness around the, the article is, and that's that does like flatten t- two narratives together in a way that is arguably irresponsible. I think that's a, a legitimate criticism, but to this. Um, the idea that the article itself, because I, I like, I think the friend you mentioned, you know, read through a singles article and anticipated the controversy because they had seen all about it on Twitter and struggled to find what was controversial about it until I had read a lot you know, more of the criticism. And, and again, there's some there's some stuff there. But the characterization of the article um, that suggests that uh, he there's not a sense of scale to me seemed a little off. So I, I found this one passage that seemed indic- like reflective of the tone that I thought the article had, which he says, to reiterate, so he said this already, but to reiterate, for many of the young people in the early studies, transitioning socially for children, physically for adolescents and young adults, appears to have greatly alleviated their dysphoria. But it's not the answer for everyone. Some kids are dysphoric from an early age, but in time become comfortable with their bodies. Some develop dysphoria around the same time they enter puberty, but their suffering is temporary. Others end up identifying as non-binary, that is, ne- neither male nor female. Ignoring the diversity of these experiences and focusing only on those who are effectively, quote, born in the wrong body, end quote, could cause harm. That's the argument of a small but vocal group of men and women who have transitioned only to return to their assigned sex. So it seemed to me in the context of this article that he wasn't making a broader claim, that he caveated a lot that the va- for the vast majority of people who um, you know, either are, are actually turn out to have dysphoria or who um, are gender nonconforming, you know, being able to explore these issues and potentially transition is a huge benefit to their lives and without which, you know, there's these high risks of um, 
suicide rates and all these other kinds of things, which he talks about a lot in the article. And so I think the tension there is between there seems to be um, a belief that his uh, Jesse Singles motives are kind of a transphobic. And what, you know, there's that argument, which I'm not seeing as much evidence for as the argument that, oh, he got some things wrong here, or this is such a subject that gets so little airing that he should have even put done more caveating and had more trans voices involved and included different kinds of transitioning stories. Um, that that I credit more, but I did have I do have some difficulty with some of the casting, or and I, I would like you to help me to explain it more because maybe it has to do with his past writing that I'm just not familiar with. I totally agree that um, he is you know caveating and he is saying over and over, and he says this in the listserv, too, he points that out. That Just to clarify, Heron, you're talking about the, the listserv of some 400 prominent writers and academics whose emails were leaked to you. Uh, yes, uh, in the listserv emails that um, mm-hmm. I reported on for Jezebel, that, uh, you know, he's coming at this from, um, with, with uh, quote, pro-trans examples. He's including the stories of happily transitioned trans teen boys. Um, he is noting at least a couple of times that, you know, some people, some teenagers for them, like transition is the right thing to do. And so ultimately I think that he's, I, I mean, like, I'm not here to litigate on his character. I'm not here to necessarily litigate on his, um, personal beliefs about trans people. But I think that what's so insidious about his piece and his body work as a whole and his coverage on trans issues is not that it's secretly transphobic. And if we can like, sort of find all the clues that point to that, then we'll expose him or something. It's more about how someone can say that they're doing something for your own good, mm-hmm. regardless of how many times you say that they're not. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Like, uh, uh, so wait, who is saying in in this situation that they're doing something for, for someone's own good? I would say that, uh, I mean, Jesse Single, for example, other such reporters who continue to say that, no, this is an example of pro-trans media coverage, um, despite the fact that there are so many trans people saying that it's not, like, we don't feel very pro about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and on some level, it, that speaks to, you know, who is granted authority, who is granted objectivity, who is granted the, the position of a rational observer or a neutral observer who's able to weigh um, all the evidence before them and come to a reasonable conclusion about the truth of the matter. Um, Who is biased? Who is unbiased? Um, By Jesse's own admission in the listserv, uh, he's only been reporting on this for two years, and yet you see person after person in those listserv emails defending him as, like, one of the... um, (laughs) The prominent experts. Yeah, like, as an incredibly qualified person. And, you know, he is a very prominent public intellectual and, like, a leading public intellectual on trans issues, um, covering them in journalism and media. I mean, he just had a 12,000-word cover story for The Atlantic. Like, so that is true, but, like, you have someone else, like uh, uh, Julia Serrano, who authored Whipping Girl, who... Um, got her PhD 15 years ago in biology. She's a literal trans scientist. Jesse Single is not a scientist. <laughs> like mm-hmm. He does not have the qualifications she has, and yet he dismisses her, and by proxy everyone else in that list, sort of over and over as part of the like uh, mob mentality on Twitter, as part of uh, the mm-hmm. people's susceptibility group thing, um, whereas he is able to come in also partially thanks to um, the... Uh, 
uh, interest in sort of counter narratives or sort of looking at the other side of things that we were talking about earlier. Um, a kind of uh, cynicism that leads to great journalism, but perhaps isn't always warranted when you're looking at someone's humanity from two sides and weighing the pros versus the, the cons of that. I've just been so amazed by the ability of someone to become an expert of something without fully engaging in the thing that they're trying to be an expert at. So in reading Heron's reporting about the listserv, you know, there was one person that said like, oh, I, I really wish we had some trans people on this list. It, it uh, It's really a void we have. Yeah, that was And then <laughs> another person, another, a woman say, say, said, I'm not interested in sharing a list of any other space with someone who is going to insist on nullifying and erasing my experience, my ex- ex- what? existence and experience as a female. And I'm always just amazed by people like, why does someone validating their existence like nullify your existence? Yeah, I mean, she's a turf. Turf's gonna turf. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but you know, because and also like his ability. Like, there's another part where he says, at the end of the day, I can definitely stop writing about this issue if it gets too much. Like the ability of 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 people that I mean, I'm not saying that people that don't belong to a community can't write about another community. Right. But the ability, like, but you have to have skin in the game. You have to feel like this is like I feel like so. I feel like journalism is social justice. So maybe we're we're just like having a different conversation about what journalism is. I think like when I report on something, it's because I want to see change. I'm doing it because I want to like speak truth to power. And so his ability of saying like I could just stop writing about this, like it's not even that serious. It's like then why are you writing about it? Well, uh, let me. I guess I'm I'm the the Jesse single defender here <laughs> on this show. But you know, as a writer who's also very new, right? I was a lawyer two months ago. Um, I don't have an expertise on anything, but I'm called upon and I do tend to write about issues like identity politics and the center uh, center left divide because those are the issues that are most controversial in our political moment and that are most interesting to people. Right. I think those are harder questions and I'm attracted to more difficult questions. And sometimes my mother or other people will say to me, like, why don't you just write a straight article about social justice, Black Lives Matter, um, prison reform? And I read those articles. I'm interested in those articles, but my like it's a personality issue. It's more interesting for me to to tackle questions that are more um, difficult to resolve that don't have the same kind of uh, broad based consensus around them. Can we, the way you're defining social justice is it a verb? So I think um, so. Social justice not as a topic, but I think social justice as a verb. Sure, sure. But I I think that e- either way, I don't necessarily necessarily like write about subjects that relate directly to I mean like it's hard to find subjects that don't kind of intrinsically relate to social justice frankly Mm -hmm. um that are political but my 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 point is that like I think that in that listserv Jesse did say I have a bias he didn't say uh trans the trans trans people trans community members have a bias and I don't he said we both have biases and you know I I hope that more trans people write I think that they absolutely should but I have a perspective as well that I think is interesting here because there is an in-group community bias, which I personally can't speak to, but which he says he encountered after talking to all of these doctors, et cetera, that is um, understandably so interested in affirming and supporting the members of a community that are very vulnerable and who don't have broader social support, that there are times when in very small, you know, narrow situations, there are 
there are kids who are swept up in um, that kind of like affirming narrative. And it turns out that they are kind of misdiagnosed. Not I don't mean like clinically, but like but why people. Is that, why, I guess my question is like, why, why is, is that the question? Why is, the que- why is that the question that you're so, so interested in? Like, the, you know, there are like Robin Karen at the Atlantic talked about her detransition came because she was like assaulted and feeling like she can't live in that. You know, like she can't live that. Like why? Like there are so many. Like if you were to ask a person that belongs to a community, what's the most important question to you? I'm sure it's not going to be this oh, absolutely. small. But if you were to ask the average Atlantic reader who's like a soccer mom sitting in the suburbs, I'm saying, I mean, like, I don't mean to, I mean, that was gender. Really love. <laughs> but like, if you were to ask, you know, the, the average the upper middle class, exactly. <laughs> on her 16th birthday. Yeah, these like these Tony New England you know, yeah. Atlantic readers, what causes them anxiety is the idea that their kids who they want, they think they're good liberals, they want to be supportive, but the idea that their kid could find a YouTube video and like think that they're trans when they're really not. I'm not saying that's right, but like so articles not- get written because they re- resonate with an so audience So this is another like example where, capitaliz- where capitalism gets to shape the story. Sure. Yeah. Aaron, I, I know it's hard to jump in when you're on the phone, so I want to give you a chance to respond to all of the things that have just been said in the past 15 minutes. Well, Definitely. Um, I, I guess I would just say that uh, I, I, I hope that what people take away from the stories that I've been doing, rather than see them as, as me trying to locate cultural and institutional transphobia on an individual whose work I just don't like, um, there's my bias. Um, <laughs> I, I, hope that what, I hope that what people see in these two stories are uh, coverage of something greater about institutional exclusion about who is granted authority mm-hmm. to tell their own stories, who is granted, who's heard, who's listened to, who's trusted. And, you know, I have a personal stake in all that as a journalist. Um, when I sort of do the math and realize that someone just made anywhere from twelve to $24,000 on a single story about trans issues, that's mm. more prominent than anything that, you know, that's, that's more than I made doing freelance reporting in an entire year last year. Wow. And I've been doing this for more than two years. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I don't see lots of trans people in newsrooms. Um, I don't see lots of trans people given um, room to advance in the same kind of way. They're not given the space or encouragement or support in order to mm-hmm. become the authorities in order to tell our own stories. So, yeah, like we're, kind of angry about it, but I hope that um, uh, any discomfort that stems from that um, and the discomfort from being asked to interrogate your own bias that might exist and you might not want to exist uh, doesn't preclude you from hearing what we actually have to say. Yeah, I think like uh, the fact that the responses have also gotten a lot of play in media um you know, this one article got the cover at The Atlantic, but The Atlantic now, um, possibly in response to all the pushback, is publishing a series of responses. So Hopefully people got paid. Yeah, no. <laughs> a good percentage. Yeah, did they did they get two dollars a word though? <laughs> Great question, um, listeners. If you've read the article and the responses, we would love to hear what you think. Especially if you were a young person, you know, has gone through the experience of trying to get trans affirming health care. The article is called "When Children Say They're Trans" on Atlantic.com, and Heron Walker has written two pieces in Jezebel. All right. Now it's time for our recommendations. We're very lucky to have Heron sticking with us. Um, Heron, tell us what you have for us. Oh, um, this is super obvious, but I'm coming at it very late in life. Um, just like go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> just like going to bed. Yes. Um, I will just like 
stay up way too late kind of stressing about something or thinking like, oh, yeah, I can keep editing this. Yeah, mm-hmm. I definitely am going to keep doing this and I don't work. I don't do any work on it. I don't um, complete any of the tasks that keep making myself stay up to do. And mm-hmm. honestly, just like, tell yourself to go to bed. Let's go to sleep. <laughs> that sleep is an more. amazing Guess recommendation. What, yeah. I need Guess to listen to you. Solve your problem. Sleep more. And your skin will be better. Like sleep is just good for you. <laughs> I've never heard of it, but I'll Google it. <laughs> Verilyn, what do you got? I am going to be recommending Eloquent Rage, a black feminist discovers her superpower by Brittany Cooper, who is a professor, brilliant woman, um, one of the founding members of the Crunk Feminist Collective. And I've just, I've been reading her book. I've been trying to take my time with it. It just has made me like rethink certain things that happened in my own life. She talks about the ways in which rage can be used for good and not to run away from it from that. So highly recommend Eloquent Rage, Brittany Cooper. Read it. Yeah, I actually saw um, Brittany Cooper last week at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Mm. She was on several panels um, and she talked about something that I find really uh, true to my experience as a writer on the women and gender beat. She talked about um, plugging into her rage every morning. Mm. Like, I'm going to plug into this rage and that is going to give me the energy that I need to keep doing this yeah. work another day. Yeah. And not as something that I I sometimes think of anger as uh, having a dulling effect on my intellect. But if I really imagine my writing process, especially when I'm writing about reproductive justice or or something like that, I find that tapping into a well of rage can help me articulate why exactly, like, the day's horrors are so horrible. Um, I'm reading a book right now that I'd like to recommend. I'm about halfway through it. It's called Barracoon by Zora Neale Hurston. She wrote it in the early 30s, but it was just published a couple months ago. It's it's really interesting. It's mostly first person, an as-told-to story of Cujo Lewis, who was the last living person at the time who was born in West Africa, abducted, trafficked through the Middle Passage, enslaved in the U.S., and then freed with the Emancipation Proclamation. So he was believed to be the last living person at the time who was enslaved but was not born into slavery. Mm. It's been really fascinating. I'm only halfway through, and I think everyone should read it. Um, Brianna. What do you have? I want to recommend a book by Yanis Varoufakis, um, who was briefly the Greek uh, Greek minister of finance. Uh, he quit in this display of integrity that is kind of um, unprecedented on our shores um, when uh, leadership basically who had previously agreed with his um, kind of uh, progressive financial agenda got into power and basically just said, oh, we're just going to do what the previous administration did because our hands are tied. Um, he is an incredibly principled person who has written this book um, that explains a kind of economic conception of the world that doesn't um, uh, doesn't treat inequity as a matter of course the way that most of us in capitalist systems are inculcated you know to believe and the book is very approachable and short it's called talking to my daughter about the economy or how capitalism works and how it fails and i think that anybody who's interested in ocasio-cortez and curious about what the socialism thing is and whether or not this it's the scary thing i think that reading this book and understanding the kind of underlying humanistic values will really be a great way to start to like inform and develop your politics Mm. that's great we don't always have a recommendation that relates back to a thing we were discussing (laughs) 
listening, so I appreciate that. Um, wait, would it be possible for me to do a quick second recommendation instead of what I just said so people think that I can read? <laughs> yes. Yours was um, so good, though. Just, like, I want them to think I read books. Um, so my recommendation would be a uh, uh, couple of books by Sarah Schulman. Uh, I, I sort of had a little deep dive in the last couple months um, into some of her novels from the late 80s and early 90s, like After Dolores and Rap Bohemia. Um, she really captures this kind of like alienated girl character so well. And I feel like so if that's something you feel like would speak to you in these alienating times, uh, yeah, go check out After Dolores and Rapohemia. Oh, and then like go do the full like people in trouble stage start gentrification of the mind, like one, two, three punch. It's like so juicy. Thank you so much, Heron, um, for your time and your recommendations. We've got a whole library for our listeners to check out now. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. For Brianna Joy Gray and Verilyn Williams, I'm Christina Cotarucci. We'll see you next week.